All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you got out on Sunday morning on New Year's Day and you're here with us to worship. My name is Scott. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to talk in a few minutes from 104th Psalm. So if you want to open to the very middle of your Bible where the Psalms are and turn to number 104, we're going to be reading that in just a few minutes. And uh, there are several verses that are part of that, so you'll definitely benefit from having that open and reading along with us. Uh, We are launching today the longest series of studies and talks that I've ever given. Most of our series go about four weeks, sometimes six weeks. We've even done 12 and 13 weeks. We're going to do 52 weeks this time. And we're going to be going right through the Bible. So this is a part of our effort to read the Bible in one year together. We're launching that effort today. Some of you got hold of the chronological Bible, Reading God's Story, which is great. Uh, Others of you, you're going to use your own favorite Bible and the reading plan that uh, you can find. We have some hard copies out in the lobby. Uh, Or you can go to our website. Our website not only has the reading plan and the PDF file, but uh, you'll find a number of other tools there that I want to encourage you to make use of. Uh, Tools that will help you to understand a variety of the types of literature that are in the Bible as well as uh, to understand what the differences and nuances are between the various translations and why you're uh, enjoying the version that you're enjoying, those kinds of things. So we hope you'll uh, take advantage of those, those tools that are available to you. Along the way, don't hesitate to raise questions from your other friends or your share group leader or from me about what you're reading and uh, why it's where it is and so on like that. When you talk about a chronological reading, if you didn't already know, the Bible is not already laid out chronologically. And so uh, you can read something at the first part of the Bible that's talking about things that are near the end. You can read things that near the end of the Bible that are talking about things toward the front. And so our reading is a little bit unique in that we're going to go through it chronologically. And uh, you say, well, Scott, I thought Genesis was at the front of the Bible. It is. And then why are we looking at Psalms? Because the psalm that uh, we're going to look at today directly relates to the opening chapters of Genesis and the creation story. So uh, that's a little bit about why we're up to what we're doing across this year. And I think we'll all be at a different place in our experience of God, in the depth of our relationship with him. And our uh, comprehending not only more about who he is and what he's doing, but how that's impacting the world around us and what difference it matters uh, with respect to our own circumstances. So uh, we hope that you're going to jump in the journey with us. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us right now, all right? Lord, would you still our hearts? By the power of your Spirit, would you help us focus our thoughts? We want to direct our gaze, our attention to you. And as you whisper in our thoughts and in our feelings and stirrings that happen inside of us, we pray that you would help it make sense, and that you would communicate. 
things that are of eternal importance to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you are looking at the Whirlpool Galaxy. We talked about some of this a few months ago that I just want to take a minute to remind us about. Because when we start talking about our universe and our world, it's big, right? Astronomers love the Whirlpool Galaxy because in relation to our own planet, it's perpendicular. And so it gives a great view to astronomers to be able to take uh, a careful, examining kind of look at the Whirlpool Galaxy. Now, just to remind you, there are billions of galaxies. Milky Way, Whirlpool, just a couple of billions. And in that Whirlpool Galaxy, which is a bigger galaxy than ours, the Milky Way, there are over 300 billion stars like our sun that have solar systems. I mean, you just have to take a moment and take that in. That is a big galaxy filled with a lot of big solar systems. If uh, you wanted to go visit, you'd have to get into some kind of transport that could take you from Earth to that galaxy. And if you were to travel at the speed of light, you would spend 31 million years getting there at the speed of light. And uh, a light year is 5.88 trillion miles. And so you'd be going every year 5.88 trillion miles to get to the 31 million light years. Now, every time I talk about these things, my head explodes. It's just like, I, you know, how do you comprehend that? And so you go, Scott, it's too far. It's too, it's too much. It's too big out there. Okay, well, let's get closer to home here in our own solar system. And that is our star, our sun, which is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface. 10,000 degrees. I mean, you just have to kind of take these things in. And it is 93 million miles from Earth. It is really close to us, but not too close. Right? Is it not remarkable where we are positioned in our solar system? Because any closer, we'd be crispy critters. Any farther away, we'd be ice cubes. We're just where we need to be for the sustaining of life. And uh, because of our close proximity to our sun, when light is traveling at the speed of light, it only takes eight minutes to get from the sun to our planet. Wow. The sun is so big, it's a million times bigger than the earth. You could put 960,000 earths inside the sun. So Earth is just this little bitty little planet in this huge galaxy. And we are just a little bitty microscopic people on this little bitty planet in this big, huge universe. And it kind of raises the question, 
Where did it all come from? How do we get it? How does everything that exists, exist? And of course, I'm going to contend for the biblical response to that, and that is there is a God who is a creator who made all that there is. And if you're one of our friends today that leans a little bit more to the scientific than to the faith side of thinking, you go, okay, just wait a minute. Before you leap into that whole God is creator, intelligent design thing, I mean, how do you respond to a lot of the questions that are out there in the scientific community? Well, let's talk about it for just a little bit. We'll just entertain two of the disciplines, cosmology and teleology. You go, okay, you already lost me. No, just hang with it for a minute. Cosmology is just the understanding of our world and the understanding of our universe according to cause. It's the study of the cause. How did this thing get caused to begin with? And teleology is understanding our world and our universe according to design. Is, you know, because of the design of this universe and of this world, does that give us any clue about its origin, about its cause. So that's all those two words mean. And let's take just a minute to reflect on that. First, on the cosmological argument, there are at least three principles that are key to understanding cosmology. And the first one is the principle of sufficient reason. So if we were to open these doors and look outside and see shrubs, grass, trees, a bird goes flying by, a jogger goes running by. You cannot look at those things and just presuppose they just exist. There must be a reason that they exist. Nothingness doesn't call for a cause. But the minute there's something, there must be a reason that something exists. What is that reason? Which leads us into the second principle, the principle of contingency. As we're looking out there at all these things that exist, they seem to be contingent. That is to say, they seem to be related to one another, in, interdependent upon one another. The trees got to have uh, sufficient rainfall. and The grass has to have a certain kind of soil. And all of these things are dependent upon the sun, and on and on we could go. So these things don't seem to be self-reliant, self-causing, self-sufficient, but all seem to be contingent, connected to one another in some kind of way, which then gets us into the principle of responsibility. What or who? is responsible for all of these things that exist in some connection or contingency with one another. What or who is responsible for that? So, uh, Daryl, you can keep your seat. I'll get my own props. But uh, let's imagine that this is the universe. Okay, I've already told you how big it is, right? So inside this sphere are billions of galaxies. And each galaxy has billions of stars and solar systems 
with billions of planets. Okay? And as far as we know, only one that's inhabited by around 7 billion people. But all that is, is inside of this universe. Okay? So you have to think for a moment. When you get down to what is or who is responsible for all this that's in there that's kind of contingent and relating and uh, relational with one another, does it make more sense that the cause is inside of all of this contingency or that the cause would be non-contingent, transcendent, outside of all that is inside this contingent sphere? Now, these kinds of conversations have been going on for thousands of years with thousands of philosophers and thinkers, right? And we're not going to settle all that in a few minutes on a Sunday morning for some of you that are still wrestling with all that. But the bottom line for people of faith is that we have come to a conclusion that it just makes more sense that everything that is within the sphere of the universe probably was caused by something that is non-contingent, not dependent upon anything within, self-reliant, self-existing. And you keep on going with descriptors like that and you begin to get at a working definition of God. Now that is the cosmological argument. Now to get more specific to that cause being something that is non-contingent, transcendent, outside of all that there is, uh, you begin to get into the teleological conversation. One of the early and, and uh, probably best-known proponents of that being William Paley, philosopher from the 1800s, who basically said this, there simply cannot be a design without a designer. And, of course, his most famous argument is the watch argument. You just look at a watch. You take a watch apart. There's no way that you can look at that watch that has intricate design and conclude anything other than it had a designer that's responsible for its existence. And you look at the intricacies of this universe, and specifically, he, he didn't get into astronomy as much as he did to biology and to anatomy. He, he said, just look at the body. For goodness sakes, just look at the eye. The intricacies, the uh, specific design and function and purpose, and how all these things come together so that it can, can carry out what its purpose is just screams for a designer behind all of that design. And you go, well, a lot of the scientific community seems to have bought into the whole idea of the Big Bang Theory, which basically says 13 plus billion years ago, there were these roaming gases, just, you know, roaming, and somehow, at one point, they began to collide, and in that collision and in that intersection, they began to fire off things that uh, ultimately resulted in protons and uh, neutrons and atoms were formed and, and so on, and matter finally came out of all that, evolved out of all that. Well, you, you have, if you, cosmologically, you have to go back and go, okay, where did the gases come from? 
and, you know, the stuff that came out of all the gases, you know, how were they able to cause that? And then to take that even further, you know, if you go home and you take the back off that new flat screen TV you got for Christmas and you begin to look at all the intricacy there, you just have to imagine could you have thrown all those parts somewhere and in a billion years they somehow would come together and form a flat screen TV? Or was there in fact a designer that brought all of that together for a certain purpose and function? So I just have to tell you, um, it takes more faith for me to take God out of the equation than it does to have God in the equation. And increasingly, the scientific community, as they see more and more of the complexities of our universe, we know more about it today than we've ever known, and we, we don't know much, but we know more about it today than we've ever known. Uh, increasingly, the scientific community is coming to the same conclusion. It takes more faith to take a designer out of the picture than it is to have a designer in, whether you want to call that designer God or something else. Even... Uh, Darwin, in his Origin of Species, said, hey, I'll give you this. To suppose that the eye with so many parts all working together could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. So, in summary, when we begin to open the pages of Scripture, and it says, in the beginning... God created. That is not only a religious statement, but increasingly many are beginning to agree and concede. That's a rationally necessary concept. If things exist, they must have a beginning. And if they are as intricately designed as they are, they must have a designer slash creator. And so in that sense, it is a rationally necessary concept. That's why you'll see verses like Colossians 1, 16 and 17 throughout the Bible. You'll see dozens and dozens and dozens of references that read something like this. For by him, God, and specifically Paul's referring to God, uh, the son, Jesus. For in Christ, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created through him and for him. And in him, all things hold together. He created it. He sustains it. Second law of thermodynamics is that everything is moving in a direction of entropy, right? Everything has some kind of beginning, some kind of lifespan, and some kind of ending. It doesn't last forever. And the Bible contends God's responsible for that beginning. God's responsible for the sustaining of, for whatever period of time it has, its life. And God's responsible for the calling to an end of it. So, that takes us to Psalm 104. Now, this week in your readings, you're going to start in the most logical place, Genesis 1. And uh, you'll begin to read through these creation narratives and some of the beginning narratives. Uh, think about it like a child. 
Why do we have this? Why do we have that? Why does this happen? A lot of those ideological kinds of questions are answered and spoken to in these opening chapters of Genesis. But chronologically, we have other passages outside of Genesis that also speak to this early creative time. And Psalm 104 is one of those. And that's why we're going to be taking a look at that today. Now, if you're just uh, perusing down at the psalm quickly, you'll notice that there are some things that are different about this psalm from a lot of other of the material in the Bible. Uh, This is why you're going to want to read from time to time some of the tools and some of the other things that we're making available to you. Because you don't read psalms like you read prose. Because it's poetry. You don't read psalms like you read history, even though there is historical matter in it. You don't read psalms like legal documents, even though there are legal things that are described in it. Primarily, it's poetic. And poetic language is always more emotive. It's always more emotional than other kinds of language. And it's always more figurative. So it seeks to paint pictures and stir and evoke a kind of emotion with those pictures. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at, in poetic language, what the biblical writer has to say about what we've just described in very cold, scientific uh, means with uh, reference to God as the creator-designer. Now notice... Uh, when he gets into unpacking all of this, he'll begin to talk about the Creator as a king. A king who is so great, so magnificent, his clothing, his garments are light. Wrap your head around that one. And so he is gleaming, he is brilliant, he is difficult to behold for a finite being because he is so brilliant. And his servants that are all around him, if you want to call them angels, are so quick, so invisible, constantly whirling around him like the wind, doing his bidding and carrying out his decrees. And the earth is something that he has just hung out there in the middle of nowhere, and yet its foundation is so firm, it's unmovable and unshakable. And all of this is sustained, consistently and constantly sustained by his hand. And you'll see a lot of references to water and the springs that he provides and the rains that he provides. And you have to remember where this originated. Out of the Near East and Middle East, where water is one of the most precious commodities because of the scarcity of it. He's the provider. He's the sustainer. He's the one that will bring the water. And then as we begin to wrap up the psalm, you'll have to ask and answer this question. What is this psalm doing? And what should I do in response to what it's doing? It's a lot of verses. You ready? Got it open? Let's get into it. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul, 
Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Creation is so easy for this great God. It's like putting up a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains and at your rebuke they fled. He parted the waters. He made land appear. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. And beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches, and from your lofty abode you water the mountains, and the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock, and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are of refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. And when the sun rises, they steal away and they lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. And when you give it up to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. And when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die. And they return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to Him. For I rejoice in the Lord. 
Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. So I'll return to the question that I just asked. What is this psalm doing? And what should I do in response? Now later, we're going to spend a lot of time in psalms weeks from now. But for now, let me just preview to say there are a variety of types of psalms. And not surprisingly, if I were to take a survey, I think you'd get it. This kind of psalm is a psalm of praise or a psalm of worship. So what's it doing? It's praising and worshiping God. And what should my response be? Praise and worship of God. Now, the Psalms are primarily written for community experiences. And so I have just done uh, something that the ancients would have never done. I have read this Psalm by myself. And so as we get into some other psalms, we'll be doing some reading together and communally experiencing what God is communicating to our hearts through the psalm. Now, what are some of the things that we can derive from this? There are two or three implications that I want to make sure that we get before we get to the response to the psalm. And the first is this. Uh, You cannot read this without getting what the psalmist is trying to say, and that is this. God is responsible for everything. He created it all. He sustains it all. Therefore, he's the owner of it all. And so one of our responses to the psalm is that we acknowledge his ownership and therefore our stewardship. Stewardship meaning we get to use His stuff. We get to use His creation. But that doesn't mean it's ours. It's still His, which means we get to use His stuff in ways that He says we get to use it. So there's a responsibility that goes with our use of His stuff. And that has all kinds of implications for ecology and for how we treat Uh, this planet and how we cooperate with God's sustaining of it, etc. A second thing that comes out of this psalm is that creation is not God. And pantheism, a heresy of, of true theology, says that everything is God. So we must treat the trees and the grass and the birds, and whatever else, as God, because God is all those things. And this psalm makes it clear, God is not all those things. God made all those things. God is over all those things. God takes care of and sustains all those things, and God calls those things home, uh, calls them to an end of their life cycle uh, whenever he sees fit. Point being, we don't worship the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the planet, all that kind of stuff. We worship God who made it all. And creation reflects God's glory. That's kind of the flip side in the sense that the pantheist would want to say everything's divine. Treat everything like it's divine. 
And the flip side of that is all matter is evil. Uh, everything that's physical and tangible is evil and therefore uh, has no intrinsic worth and, and no value. And it doesn't matter how we treat evil matter, evil earth, evil stuff. But this psalm makes it clear God created it all, and he did so in such a way that it all reflects his glory. And therefore, it is not intrinsically evil. He created everything, as you'll see in Genesis 1 and 2, and said, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. Good in its purposes to ultimately reflect his glory. So it's altogether appropriate that you can look at Mount Rainier and get inspired to worship God. Or look at Puget Sound and get inspired to worship God. Or uh, take a hike and see all kinds of wildlife and uh, wildflowers and things like that and get inspired to worship God. And not worship those things. But ultimately what this psalm is about is praise and worship of God. So we're going to do that. So Jerry and the band are going to come. And as uh, the psalmist said, I take song and I praise Him and I exalt Him and I lift Him up. And that's what we're going to do over these next few minutes. And so I encourage you with a whole heart, with a mind fully engaged, thinking about the Creator, the Designer, the Sustainer of all that is, the one who condescends to care about us, love us, allow us to engage him and all his stuff, we worship him.